Welcome to Sincerely Two Imperfect Therapists, a podcast where we discuss boundaries, money stories, healing within relationships, the therapeutic process, social justice from both the therapist and the client perspective, and the nuances of the human condition. While we may not have all the answers, we use our expertise and personal experiences to guide our discussions that we hope spark curiosity and reflection within yourself. Please note, this is a podcast that's not intended for supervision, therapy, or guidance for your individual needs. Rather, we intend to raise awareness on important topics. We do our best to provide content warnings, though if any topics are upsetting to you, please seek local emergency support. Hi, everyone. I'm Aida. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about mutual decision-making in therapy. Let's Let's get get into it. it. All right. So some common assumptions and myths I thought was a really good place to start off for today. Ooh, I love that. Let's start there. Um, I think that when people think of therapy, first and foremost, I always like to blame Hollywood Mm. as depicting us as these deviants who sometimes (laughs) sleep with their clients. And while there are highly unethical therapists out there, which is unfortunate to say, just as there is in every other field, um, there's a lot of really good therapists. And I feel like we get a really bad rap. So, yeah, (laughs) it's so interesting to me that you bring up Hollywood. I don't know if I've ever watched a movie or TV show with a therapist in it. Where I've been like, yeah, that's a that's an accurate depiction. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's just always just straight trash. Yes. Always. I mean, the show or the movie could be great, but the depiction of the therapist is like just trash. Yeah. I often see memes in like, you know, psychotherapy pages like on Instagram where mm-hmm. it's like the caption is like when you see a therapist on screen like do something unethical and it's a guy like pointing like that was unethical. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, I... I I just wonder what it is that people think about going into the psyche, essentially, that seems to be so almost like depicted as a perversion. And I just don't understand where that comes from. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, I mean, therapy is intimate, not intimate in a in a sexual way but when we are sharing so much of ourselves so deeply, there is intimacy in that. And Mm -hmm. I think that 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 then gets totally twisted out of put through the yeah meat grinder of hollywood (laughs) um which is awful so when you think of different myths or assumptions especially when you hear them from people that you're in contact with like your clients or just people in your general life when they say oh you're a therapist Mm -hmm. um what myths or kind of a common assumptions come to mind For me, at least with my family, is this idea that I know everything, somehow that I know all the answers, that I'm looking at people, and I am somehow reading their minds. And I want (laughs) to make the important distinction that psychic and psychology are two different things. I I wish I was psychic. Right? (laughs) We do not take Mind Reading 101 in grad school or in our training, what we do do that perhaps might seem a little creepy to people is read body language, nonverbal cues, understand that the body is also a form of communication, that we don't just have to use our language in order to communicate a message. And that can be a little off-putting and that can make it seem like why we're always so perhaps on point with our observations, but I want to remind everyone that no, we, we are not psychic and we don't have all the answers. Yeah. I, (laughs) that's something that I always share usually in my intake session. So the first time that I'm like sitting face to face with a client, um, I'll I'll usually joke that I'm not an all knowing wizard. I wish that I was, (laughs) but I'm not, I don't have all the answers. I'm a human just like you. Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting that that's what comes up. I, when I get a lot from like people outside is, are you psychoanalyzing me? Oh God. Yes. And my favorite response is yes. (laughs) Cause it always, it always catches them off guard. They don't expect me to actually come back with a yes, but I'm not. I don't. Well, sometimes. Um, (laughs) One that I always get, and it kind of goes hand in hand with like having all the answers, I think, is that people assume that the therapist is automatically in charge, just Mm. always like being the leader. Right. That that 
people will go in and feel that there's this power difference and that they have no say. Going off of that, you know, one thing that I often experience with people, particularly who haven't been to therapy before, is quite literally the question, so? And then they look at me expectantly, and I'm like, (laughs) yes. Keep going. Right, keep going. So what's been going on? And, you know, I'll definitely ask some questions that help open up the conversation, but, you know, it's it's interesting the amount of times that I've had um, people sit and almost expect me to just start I don't know, therapizing? <laughs> like, that's definitely not no, a word. We're but... already therapizing. Right. If you're on the couch, we are therapizing. <laughs> exactly. And it's just like, well, you know, I understand the hesitance, but I also don't know what to help you with if you don't tell me, right? We're not all knowing. We can't just pick something out of your brain because we can't see into it. Sure. <laughs> um, so that's that's definitely something you know, interesting. It's interesting. I, I'm going to bounce off of that just Mm -hmm. briefly and without going off too much on a side tangent but um I saw someone recently who had kind of raised this question of like our intake sessions where we're like Mm. you know tell me all of your psych history tell me all your family's psych history tell me all your medical medications all your medical issues tell me all the trauma that you have had that all in one session, like, hi, we just met five minutes ago, and now I'm right. asking you these questions, can feel really traumatic. And so it was it was just an interesting perspective and question kind of raised as far as, like, a discussion. And it made me I, – I thought of that because when somebody's sitting in front of us and they're, like, kind of waiting for us to take the lead, it just begs the question of are they sitting in a place of just really truly not – not knowing like have they ever had somebody's undivided 100% attention and are they wondering like well is she expecting me to just dump everything in my whole life story all in five minutes and I think that usually gets a client going is like you mean you you bring up a good point you mean I can talk about myself here and it's not going to be shut down immediately or you know I'm not going to be called you know selfish or self-centered or and even just that can write bring like a like it's a window into what the client is is working through and there are sometimes I'll have to admit like intakes my god I have strong feelings about intakes and the how um, we have pathologized mental health in the mm-hmm. western world um but sometimes I don't get through all the questions like on medication because that's just not what I need to know right there because I can get that information later. Right now, it's not important. On EHR systems, there's often like predetermined intake questionnaire or or what have you. And I feel like there is consistently two or three boxes that I'm just constantly like, we'll continue to gather information. <laughs> we'll continue yes. to gather information, not yet reported. Right. <laughs> that, like, I am not going to force myself right. to and force my clients to unearth and give me a PowerPoint presentation of all of their drama right off the bat. But like, it is a relationship, just like we talked about in Mm -hmm. our last episode. Therapy is about the relationship. And in no other relationship do we just jump in and tell a person our whole life story. Right. Therapy is no different and should be no different. How can we expect to build trust and connection with our clients if we are then forcing them into this box yes, so true so true I my god and especially when sometimes people don't always know the terms right like you'll have people come in like I don't have any trauma and then you start asking questions and it's like oh okay well yeah, yeah. and then it all begins right yeah so feeling like we know everything mm-hmm. believing that therapists are always the ones in charge that we just automatically take the lead no matter what are there any other myths or assumptions that you come across? I um, Assumptions, I would say that all therapy is the same. Not all therapy is the same. Not all therapy is the same. At all. <laughs> <laughs> there are different modalities. And every therapist, if we recall our last episode, bring pieces of themselves into the room. So their approach to therapy is going to be a little different because maybe they just approach things a little differently. They say things a little differently. Um, 
we would hope that a message is generally clear is that your emotions are safe Mm -hmm. and it's okay to have them um, and what to do with them. Um, But this idea of like almost like a structured, again, one size fits all approach in therapy is I think a huge myth that needs to be debunked. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Well, gosh, I always say that. It's always interesting. (laughs) Um, I am committing now here on the air. I am no longer going to say that. (laughs) Um, We do a lot of the same work. We're both passionate about similar things and we are totally different people. Yes. And I feel like if you were to like be a fly on the wall in one of our sessions, you would see totally different approaches and styles. Right. And the approaches, the treatment is also going to be conceptualized a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. So even in our discussion before we hopped on the air, um, we agreed on the same point and our thoughts took us in slightly different ways, right? So where we talked about like, you mentioned that um, more of like the, the effect that certain traumas have on an adult. And I view it as, okay, what happened in childhood that is reiterating that message today what's Mm -hmm. presenting and right and it's it's interesting because it's like that's an amazing approach because you're helping people kind of cope with whatever the presentation is as an adult now because that's where they are right now and I'm always just constantly wondering not that I'm forcing this (laughs) idea on my clients but I'm constantly wondering is the way you relate to people Let's look at your first way of yeah. relating to people. Let's look at your attachment because sometimes there's just stuff to dig there. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same same goal. Yep. Same understanding that relationships come into play. Yes. Just a different starting point. Right. So I do often get into like childhood stuff mm-hmm. and attachment, but we always start with the present relationships and yeah. like the what's happening here today for you now and then going back and getting curious about yep. childhood. But yeah, it's the same mm-hmm. goal, different approaches, different styles, different um, methods of getting to the same Result. same place, same yeah. outcome. Yeah. And I think similarly, so the conversation that we were having before we hopped on was this conversation around, you had mentioned all therapy is not the same. Right. But also that not all therapists treat everything. Right. I think the example that I used with you like literally 10 minutes ago was I wouldn't go to a podiatrist for a heart arrhythmia. I would go to a, cardi- a cardiologist. Right, right. I, I don't want to talk to somebody about my feet when I'm going for my heart. Exactly. So right. there is going to be somebody who is more specialized and more equipped to handle what you're struggling with the most at that time. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think a lot about when I was working in these huge agencies that we would – get clients with a lot of co-occurring presentations and oftentimes it was like okay what is feeding off of the other so what is are you feeling depressed because you're so anxious that you can't get things done you can't leave the house and so that's triggering your depression or are you so anxious because you have zero motivation and you can't get anything done and that also causes anxiety? And so it's that breakdown is quite important um, for a therapist to discern so that they know exactly maybe where to start. And, and again, it's not therapy is not like medicine where it's a like a clear A, B, C, sometimes we have to go back to the drawing board um, because maybe what we saw in intake isn't exactly the whole picture because, again, it's only an hour <laughs> a week <laughs> of the whole week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put a uh, like one of those swear <laughs> jars, but I'm going to do a it's so interesting jar. <laughs> That's hilarious. I swear. <laughs> okay, so eh, right in my it's so interesting jar. Um, you do EMDR and so do I. Mm-hmm. And something that we see often in the EMDR specialty um, or approach is that 
We'll get people who are looking to do adjunctive work. So they already have a primary therapist that they're working with, that they have a good relationship with, a Mm -hmm. strong relationship with, but there's something that they are stuck on that they are looking to target and seek through EMDR therapy. And I think that that's the perfect example of kind of what we're talking about, that in those instances, there is a therapist out there who has said, oh my gosh, we've been doing such wonderful work, but here's this one big thing that we keep coming back to that I'm not quite sure how to help you with. Let's go talk to somebody who knows how to help you move through this one bump in the road. That when we're able to do that, it's more beneficial to our clients. Yes. Versus just, no, they're mine and you're with me and I can do it all. Um, and that can leave the client feeling stuck too of just, well, I really like this person and I don't want to offend them, but I feel like there's this thing that they really aren't able to help me with. Right. But when we give them the choice yeah. and the power to make a decision, you can offer it to them as a choice and say, I really think that this would be beneficial to you. I think a DBT group would do wonders for you. Can we talk about what that would look like? It gives them the choice. Absolutely. And we touched a little... I'm. I'm glad that you brought that up because that really ties well into our episode last week where we talked to, where we started talking about mutual decision making and it's giving people the choice because chances are they may have had people in their life that didn't give them the option or didn't give them the power of choice. Um, and so coming into a room where you ha- you're, you finally have all these options, I'm sure can at first feel a little overwhelming, but also how cathartic also Um, To be able to, even if it's just for one hour out of the whole week, to be able to sit and just talk about you and what you need. So I'm wondering if we can jump into, I have some questions and I'll ask you them first. And then after you answer, I will share my answer. And from there, we'll move into talking about some consultation stuff. So I have like a therapist style pop quiz for Ooh. you um, because as we're talking about different styles that we bring into the therapy room, um, I think it's important to highlight just how different therapy can be based on modality, niche, and literally who your therapist is. Yes. So let's do it. Um, okay. Do you tend to be more structured, meaning concrete tasks and techniques, or spontaneous, exploring a variety of topics that accumulate into insights in most of your sessions? Definitely spontaneous. I let my client lead once we've established enough rapport um, that if they're talking about something specific, I'll tie it into a certain theory or modality. Okay. Yep. I like that. Spontaneous. So last episode, we talked a lot about psychodynamic, just mm. for reference, would be more of a spontaneous type approach or modality something like cbt or dbt would be more structured and concrete task based for me i would say i'm more spontaneous more spontaneous most often however i feel like there's a caveat yes with emdr um okay how comfortable are you with being direct with your clients even when you might make them uncomfortable Uh, quite comfortable. Sometimes I actually have to remind myself to reel it in um, just because I'm very comfortable with confrontation. So I try to make sure that that remains as strength-based as possible. Okay. Do you have an example of what being direct for you looks like in session? Let me pull out of the many things I... Out of your memory book. Yeah. Um... When um, a client is telling me something that's incongruent with their actions, um, I have um, definitely had the experience where I will point that out and the client becomes quite angry. And I lean into that and I'm like, that caused a reaction (laughs) and let's talk about it. Because I'm wondering, you're, you have this question, and I'm wondering if it's stemming from, a, as a consequence or a product of this thing that you said you did. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm definitely comfortable. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am not. Okay. I 
try. (laughs) (laughs) So let me explain. I feel like all of my answers to these are going to be this, but. (laughs) So if I'm sitting with someone who, let's say their relationship's not going so good. If I have somebody who's sitting there and not quite in the acceptance place of the fact that their partner is displaying abusive behavior in their relationship, I will ask some leading questions, Mm. kind of seeing if they can put those pieces together. And if they can't, if they don't get there within a couple of questions, that's kind of when my more direct approach will come in. Do you think people appreciate the directness more? I've gotten the feedback that yes. I also try to also always read the room of when it's appropriate and when it's not, but that does tend to be my go-to approach. And I think that stems from my internship. Um, I was in like the type of work that we did was a little bit drama therapy based. Mm -hmm. So you're like very much in the room centered and going in with questions. So we were taught to look at um, what they call like glazing over. And, you know, they're they're talking about the story deeply and then they say, and then this happened and it's very vague. That's where you go in. Because if they're talking about it very vaguely, it's probably um, an avoidance tactic. Um, And that's what I was taught. Yeah. So I think I struggle with confrontation in general. And so bringing pieces of me into the therapy yeah. room. I want to be better of, at that in both my personal life and even as a therapist. I do strive to be more direct and I just know that I'm I'm not. I'm very, I tend to, I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> the place where I find it easier to be more direct is in calling out defenses. Mm. So like you said, with vagueness or intellect, intellectualizing um, where they'll kind of jump around and I'm yeah. like, can oh, we, gosh. can we go back, go back two yeah. steps? Um, do you notice that we're just like mm-hmm. glazing as glazing. you said yes. over all of these different topics? Um, or even like the doorknob confessions. Oh, we'll call those, those out, out the door confessions. Ah, oh, yeah. Here you are two minutes telling me this thing that you want to share. Right. I'm not going to forget that for next week. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think that that's where I'm getting more comfortable with being direct. Overall, uh, definitely not as comfortable with being direct and working on it. You got this. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. So my next question about your style is how – it goes directly back to that. How do you work with client defenses? Yeah. Um, um, I do it a lot based on where we are in the relationship um, just because – Going back to the amazing conversation we had before coming on and talking on the podcast is sometimes we can't strip away clients' defenses um, because that is all they've had and all they've known for years. And so I tackle that with a more gentler gentler approach, which is interesting um, because I know that that's all they have. And so I never challenge a client to bring down a defense if we haven't we don't have a coping skill to replace it sure so that looks like getting curious about it oh yeah yeah oh definitely when facing those defenses and this is kind of what I'm hearing from you too so don't you know feel free to correct me if I'm if I'm misrepresenting it um but when we get curious about it it's Let's think about when this first started. How long have you done that? What yeah. other what are, what other areas do you notice that maybe you do this now that we're sitting here noticing what's happening and what's going on? Versus, you know, you really shouldn't do that. That's not healthy. This is healthier. Blah 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 blah. blah before we've developed, like you said, coping yeah. skills. We are, I, right, right agree there. Agree with you on that. Not surprising. We agree about it. Yes, lot. we. Yes. And then my last question is, how would you describe? And this goes back to our conversation from last time um thinking about like theoretical orientation and grad school it's like very emphasized how would you describe what you've now developed as your theoretical orientation i would say definitely person-centered i believe the term is more adlerian mm-hmm. um so i i firmly believe that um clients do have the tools within them to heal Um, It just takes a development of that toolbox and um, deconstructing uh, essentially a lie that they've been fed that they don't have it Mm -hmm. by whoever, society. For me, it's always 
early attachment. Um, but I, I strongly believe, and it's been to me proven time and time again, that clients absolutely have the power to make the change in their life that makes sense for them. Cause that's the caveat. Mm-hmm. It has to make sense for you. Do you have specific modalities that fit into that person centered approach? Um, I, I often find myself drifting towards DBT, which again is very interpersonal based. So what do I have to do in order to make this work? Um, I am very heavy on, um, taking accountability for what our role is in things and that I want to make sure that we understand that I am by no means blaming victim or or clients or anything for where they find themselves in but there has to come a time that if you want change we cannot wait around for other people to do it for us there's a level of accountability and responsibility that has to be had in order to make the change that makes sense for you because if we're just waiting for people to make that change or define it then we're still going to be living under someone else's rules that doesn't make sense to me but so yeah I tend to go towards a more like dbt um, approach because half the time and my clients are coming to me specifically because I'm a trauma counselor they just want that shit out like they're like literally tell me please take it out and I'm like, okay let's get you some I like to call dbt coping skills on the go because when you start understanding those things you can implement them much faster than me trying to and not knocking CBT because I also use CBT, but me trying to somehow convince you to change your thought, that's really difficult to do. I'm really glad that you shared that perspective. Um, I come from an approach that is much more bottom up. So CBT and DBT to some extent, and I'm not shitting on DBT because I I really, I actually really admire DBT. Yeah. Um, I think it can be really, really beneficial to helping kind of people get to a place where they can actually handle the bottom up approach. But what I mean by that is when we think of, of something like CBT, it's very, it's cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's all about your think, your thinking process and your cognitions and it can feel very gaslighting yes I was just about to say that I was saying that in my head yes (laughs) um that I cannot just picture a stop sign and not have a flashback that's just not gonna happen so I find that sometimes CBT can do that and I'm not gonna go off on a tangent yes because I admire DBT and I'm really glad that you shared that because I think from the, the frame that you're coming from, it sounds like it's really helpful to you and your clients, which is awesome. Yeah, no, I, I agree on that. That's why I, I don't always touch upon it. And if I do, it's after I've done the bottom up approach so that my clients can make that determination for themselves is if they want to adapt a different mindset. And there are helpful parts oh, yeah. of CBT, Yeah, right? Like I talk about black and white thinking all the time with my clients, mm-hmm. all the time, but it's not as a, a whole, it can be difficult to treat, especially with trauma. Oh, um, it's a difficult. You, you know what? I'm so glad you mentioned that because CBT <laughs> is not something I integrate like with heavy trauma work because it just, you're not going to sit here, especially with me who n- niches an in interpersonal trauma. I'm not going to sit there and ask you, is that really what happened? Which is essentially the questions that come up. Are you up. filtering those thoughts right. so it's all bad? Exactly. Like It's like, yeah, no, it was right. all pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> like the reality of it is, is that sometimes people have anxiety because of actual evidence. And so when you do Socratic mm-hmm. questioning and you're like, examine the evidence, bitch, I have it. Sorry. Are we it's allowed fine. to do that? Okay. Yeah, we yeah. are. Like, <laughs> I have it. I have the evidence. Exactly. What do you mean? And so it's like, yeah, the questions kind of fall flat after that. It's like, yeah. 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 <laughs> and you have reason to feel the way that you feel. Um, so yeah. Okay. Clearly yes. that's going to be a topic yes. for another day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I'm glad we got into that. Yeah. Um, so I would say my theoretical orientation tends to be a little bit closer to what you said. So person-centered, relational, hints of psychodynamic, mm-hmm. but not super, super much, Yeah. which surprise, because I kind of 
shat all over psychodynamic <laughs> last episode. Um, but I really don't have anything against it. I do think that there's helpful bits from it. The modalities that I would say that I use would be EMDR, Developmental Needs Meeting Strategy, DNMS. Mm. So parts work. Just very focused on how we relate to our outside world. Yeah. How do we relate to our inner world? How do you just briefly... Um, before we go into like decision making in the therapy room, um, how do you handle your consultations with clients? How do you let them know like who you are, what you're about? Uh, yeah, I like to more, more often than not, I find that people don't actually have any questions for me. Um, so I'm actually working through how awkward it feels for me to talk about myself, um, <laughs> during the consultations. Um, because I'd like for my clients to know my approach before they make the decision if I'm good enough for them if I'm my approach is exact is what they want or if they can even connect with it Mm -hmm. um and so I let them know that I tend to be very transparent um that I like to challenge um and what and what that means right what challenging looks like um I also like to be I I gather, I try to gather a good amount of information without getting obviously into opening up um, so much. Um, That way I can have an idea of who I'm going to be meeting with and so they can have an idea of who they're walking into um, before our intake session. And during that, I, I personally see the importance of also going through what I call the laundry list. Um, which is the informed consent, notice of privacy practices, um, attendance policies, and for me, um, expectations in telehealth is huge. Um, I make it known that I will not be doing a telehealth session while you are at your family's barbecue or with driving driving because that's <laughs> distracting and you're not actually going to do any unsafe so unsafe <laughs> it's so unsafe it's super distracting you're not going to adequately process any type of trauma or do any trauma work or really any type of work if you are making sure that you don't crash which is really important and if you do crash right what am i supposed to do right i can't do anything to help you i'm gonna be and laying on your driver's right. seat floor going hello are you there right. is everything okay <laughs> is everything are you all right should i call someone right like i no um so i i like to make um some of those things clear and let's be honest we've all definitely not read things or paperwork if it's really long so nope nope so I like to explain um the highlights of that to also give my clients an understanding that hey remember how we talked about this is all about you well guess what you have rights too and let me tell you about them um because I think it really sets the tone that we are here to model healthy relationships and so within healthy relationships you have to set expectations and boundaries in the beginning And it can be received differently, too, when you talk about it. So, like, reading, I always want my clients to start off weekly. Yeah. And reading on paper in my attendance policy that I expect you to come every single week at first might feel like, oh, I didn't think I needed weekly therapy, and I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. But when I actually sit with you and share why I think it's important for you to start it weekly, it gives the message differently oh yeah that it can be received in a way of I care about this relationship and I care about getting to know you and giving you the best quality care that I can and I can't exactly do that if right off the bat we start seeing each other once a month so I think yeah you're absolutely right sharing that in person can definitely change the the tone oh yeah 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 Mm -hmm. um I won't even share what I do during consultations because it's exactly that. (laughs) (laughs) I talk to them a little bit about what they're, what they're looking for and just help them feel that there's a decision in the process that they get to choose that it's okay to shop around for a therapist. Mm -hmm. That is okay. I'm not going to get my feelings hurt. So jumping into the work, you're in the, in the therapy room, you've been seeing a client for a while. How do you incorporate mutual decision-making and choice into the therapy room? So there is a reason I named 
my practice reflective intentions. And it's because I believe that to make a choice, you first need reflection and then you absolutely need intention. Without both of those things, it will be very hard for you to know which choice you want to make because choice also determines that there's going to be a change. And in order for change to realize itself, you need to have intent. And so I think it's extremely important to have both of those present in order to help clients feel comfortable enough and believe that they have a choice. Hmm. I love that. Thank you. I don't think I knew that about your practice name. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing. You are welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So then is that something that you talk about with them in session? I mean, not not going into like a whole story about yeah. your by, about your practice name, but do you explain that interaction between being reflective and having intention? Yes, with them? absolutely. Um, I have a lot of clients um, that have over the years followed me wherever I've gone to practice, um, and I've had a few that started all at the same time. And so, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, they find themselves in similar paths um, in therapy, and so. I get a lot of clients who reach this point where they realize that there has to be a change made and then they get so upset about it. They get so upset that it has to be them. They get so upset that um, it has to require this much work. And so the reflection's already done. That's when I introduce intention. I'm like, yep, change causes a lot of discomfort. But your change is just a dream until you have intent. So. You tell me what that intent looks like, and then we talk about it. Um, And so I definitely bring it up throughout um, my sessions. And I sometimes close off my sessions with reminding my clients to stay intentional because most of the work is done outside of the therapy room, right? It is, you only see me for an hour (laughs) out of a seven-day week. That's not a lot of time. It's a great amount of time for you to focus on you, but you also need to practice that outside of sessions in order for that change to last. So that leads me to to think, um, as you're talking about intentions and being reflective, there are often, um, I see this a lot in my EMDR clients who come to me specifically seeking EMDR, where they are ready to go. Mm-hmm. Like they sit down on that couch and they're like, okay, so now what? Yep. Now what do we do? Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> like I, I'm ready to get rid of get all of out. this. Yeah. And I have to work with them to slow down that slow is fast in emdr that we have to be intentional about how we do that work and i want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's most beneficial to them Um, and so there is a very mutual decision making process that happens there um where I hear your goals. I hear that this is really hard for you and that you want to get moving. I love that for Mm -hmm. you. I love how energized and motivated you are, how intentional you're being about coming and seeking this specific therapy. But we also need to make a joint decision to move forward with the process. Um, And in that, there are lots of conversations where there's like a really strong part of them that wants to do the work. They're ready yep. to jump in. They're ready to go. And then there's this other part of them that's like, this is all bullshit. It's all woo and ridiculous. And I don't even really want to be here. And working with even those parts yep. to get on board with the decision yes. that's being made. And we've worked with a part that's kind of jumping in and saying, "Ugh, I don't really want to do this. Yeah. And... There is a decision-making process in explaining. We get to decide how fast and how slow you want to go when it comes to at least the processing piece and like the depth of it. You get to decide how much you share with me. Mm -hmm. We can do a blind to therapist approach and I know nothing. Or you can go and share narratives Mm -hmm. (laughs) about what's happening in between sets. Whichever feels comfortable for you. I am going to stand as a guide and share my perspective when it comes to like racing to the work if we're going too fast or going to or um, kind of pushing you a little bit if I if I feel like it's necessary or appropriate. Um, 
but it's all that mutual just like there are so many conversations in that yeah I love that you mentioned about the blind um client therapist approach because I get a lot of clients who are hesitant to share certain parts of their Mm -hmm. trauma because it's just too painful to articulate out loud. And I've quite literally told clients, if you can't get the words out, give me a nod, give me a gesture. Our body communicates. Point. Point. Um, Give me a color. Give me a shape. Something that represents if that's something that you want to do. But let me know where you're at so I know where to meet you. Yeah. Absolutely. And having that be an ongoing conversation is helpful because sometimes they might go into it thinking, and this goes even outside EMDR, right? Mm -hmm. Like that people might go into it thinking, yeah, I'm an open book. I'll share whatever I want. And then when it really comes down to it, there are some things that we sit with and are like, am I really going to say this out loud to another person? Because there are depths of our souls. (laughs) That have never been seen or acknowledged by another person other than us. Yeah. And that is terrifying. It is. But it's up to you to share those things. And you don't have to share them. Right. Um, For those who maybe don't know, the blind to therapist approach that um, we're talking about is essentially an approach that allows a client to not share details of their trauma or of the memory that they are processing um, and the work can continue. We can do EMDR with that. Um, I've had clients who will just refer to like the target. Okay, today we're working on the incident. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know what the incident is. I don't really even need to know the details of the incident. What's it about? All I need to know is that it's bothersome to you, the belief that's connected to it, and the emotions and physical sensations. That's it. Yep. I wanted to just briefly take a moment and tie back because earlier on in the session, we talk about going deep into glazing over. And Mm -hmm. so I want to make the, you know, make a statement that, again, this is why not all therapy is the same Mm -hmm. because EMDR can take a different approach from what people sometimes call the traditional trauma-informed approach where you are digging deep for those details. And again, it's a conversation that needs to be had with your client and knowledge on the part of the therapist to know which modality could work best with the client that you're seeing and what their presentation is, what would work best for them. Because I have some clients I see for talk therapy that are working through their trauma and then others who are just doing EMDR. And my approach is congruent with those modalities yeah 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 and it can ebb and flow right Right, we can can have people who initially come for talk therapy and you bring up emdr you bring up a different approach you can have Mm -hmm. people that start with emdr and then go you know what this is really i'm not in a place where i i want to do this type of processing right okay okay great no problem let's table it Mm -hmm. and come back to it later and we can revisit if that's a decision that you want to make right it may be that emdr is not for them Right. And that's okay. I want my clients to feel that they have a choice. It's a tool in my toolbox, but it's not the only tool. Yeah. Um, I say that a lot. say that a lot to people. <laughs> um, it's a tool, but it's not my only tool. Yeah. I'm wondering how else, when you think of like consent in the therapy room, especially when we work with trauma, how else that comes into play for you? Mm. That's really important because I actually was thinking about it this morning. Um, trauma work is very delicate Mm -hmm. and I strongly believe that unless you are willing to continue to educate yourself on what trauma work looks like maybe don't do it (laughs) Um, because yeah that's okay Um, you don't have to do that Um, because it is delicate and there will be There will be times where I fully believe that we may say something that might trigger a client um, because, again, this isn't an exact science, but you have to be willing to put your emotions aside to help a client understand theirs. So it's not about you, right? So it's not about getting caught up in, oh my God, I'm embarrassed. I need, no, 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 no. Do that on your own time. Ask what happened. Resolve. 
secure and healthy attachments is not the absence of conflict. It's how you are able to handle the conflict and resolve that conflict. And so with trauma work, that absolutely comes up. I've had clients absolutely yell at me because we touched on something super painful. And I know that they weren't yelling at me. They were yelling about what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I often ask first, do you want to touch this right now? Fully knowing that we have to touch it at some point. Because mm-hmm. I'm also not avoidant, right? Because that can also send the message that you're not actually capable or willing to hold these things for your client. Um, and that's not a good look if you're doing trauma work. <laughs> yes. um, so yes. I, I ask, do you want to work on this right now? Well, what does that look like? And we go into that conversation so that we can exercise that mutual decision making. Mm. Asking first. As I do. Yeah. 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 Permission. I will ask, especially with my, my clients with interpersonal and relational trauma, I will ask, I have an example of this that relates to what we're talking yes. about. Do you mind, would you be open to hearing my example? It has something to do with me. And that, and I usually follow that up with, and my feelings won't be hurt if you say no. It is okay. I'm, I'm genuinely asking if this is something that you're interested in hearing. Mm-hmm. More often than not, yeah. yeah. No, more often than not, I get, yeah, yeah, please. Let me, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. Other times, again, reading the room, I won't say anything. Mm-hmm. Or I will get people who are, uh, no, I, no, I'm all right. Yeah. I've gotten a lot of people who try to compare their situation to mine and it's just never helpful. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Great. I'm glad that you can acknowledge that. Let's talk about when that's happened and how that's felt to you that people have tried to compare their situation to yours. Um, So I think in that sense, it's very important to think Mm. about consent and offering them that choice because even when we think that that disclosure has a purpose or it's helpful or it's going to be helpful, we don't know that for a fact. So asking if it's okay to share something gives them choice and letting them know that they won't be ridiculed or reprimanded for saying no, that they can say no. Um, And if they struggle to say no, or you can tell that they're apprehensive, that also is a conversation. It's information. Um, Yeah. I started reading um, a book on sensory motor therapy. And within the three lines of reading that book, my (laughs) mind was absolutely blown. And That's really important because that, again, comes from a trauma-informed approach. Read the room. Read the body language. If the client does is not comfortable with the word no chances are they're not going to tell you with their words but they're absolutely going to communicate communicate it with their body the shifts yeah i I guess hello people pleasing (laughs) and you know it's it's okay to say because i've definitely had that before where Mm -hmm. i'm like would you like to touch this today would you like to dive deeper and then I'm noticing the shift in the discomfort I'm like it's okay if you don't want to because this is you this is for you this is your time and so let's maybe talk a little bit about something that's a little bit more comfortable more often than not it tends to lead exactly where we were going towards um, but it's at their pace Mm -hmm. because that's really important Mm -hmm. Um, people communicate with their bodies and I feel like that comes a lot from my work with um, people on the spectrum, um, particularly the ones that um, haven't developed um, a lot of verbal skill. Um, I get a lot of, I had a lot of parents be like, well, I just don't know what he's saying because he's not communicating. I'm like, "Mm, no, no, he's, they're, they're communicating. They're just not using their words. And I think we're all programmed to believe that that's the only way to communicate because that's probably the fastest way. Um, people communicate in all sorts of different ways that's literally the case with children right when they're tantruming babies who don't have vocabulary and scream and cry your baby's not manipulating you right I know there's just nothing else I won't to go say. off on that right. I'm just gonna leave it there <laughs> mic drop your baby's not manipulating you <laughs> Oh man, I can go again. That attachment work, I can go. Yeah, yeah. Another topic for another yes, day, of course. But it's <laughs> but but it is so true when mm-hmm. we think about that. Even in this space of forcing clients to 
come up with a word. Tell right. Where's the feeling? Where's that feeling that you had when you right. were three years old? What if when they were three years old, they didn't know what they were actually right. feeling? And so there are no words to describe the feeling right. because it was such a different experience back then when they were three years old and didn't have the vocabulary yeah. to say, you violated my boundary right. or you hurt me or you pissed me off, whatever whatever it is when we force clients or make them feel like they have to mm-hmm. give us something and we have some sort of agenda or prerogative with that it takes away their choice right yes yeah I think that's really important to remember that it's okay to acknowledge your past self as part of who you are um I get a lot of clients who get so mad at their past self for the decisions that they made and I'm like hey just as a reminder, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And so you can rest in the fact that you'll never know less than what you know now, but you can't, like, it's, it, it'll be hard to blame past you for what current you knows. That wouldn't be fair to you. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't know what you didn't know. Exactly. When we're talking about mutual decision-making mm-hmm. and choice in the therapy room and not knowing what you don't know. I am thinking back on some of my early baby therapist career days. Mm -hmm. And there are even times now where I look back and I'm like, I can't believe that I was so emotionally and physically uncomfortable sitting with someone who expresses hey sometimes I want to die that I would be somebody who would like jump up and like call my supervisor and call 911 totally a normal reaction for somebody who's fresh into the field just want to say that by the way being where I am now I can look back and see that that wasn't super helpful in those moments probably not how I would handle that now five six years in but I want to emphasize to people who are maybe in the early stages of their career or maybe doing agency work or at a group practice where you're working underneath somebody else's policies and procedures so I want to emphasize that even in those circumstances as a therapist you have the ability to offer choice in different kinds of ways Um, Whether it be verbally reiterating the practice policies, you get to ask them if they're okay with processing something really hard and really deep. You get to ask them if they're okay with a disclosure that you're about to make or that you're thinking about making. Um, You get to offer them choice in, do you feel like this therapy is still working for you? Let's talk about a relationship. Um, That even in those settings where you feel like maybe your autonomy as a therapist is restricted, you still have control in that relationship with your client and they still have choice. Yes. Beautifully said. That was a great recap. Thank you. Thank you. So on that note, be sure to tune into next week's episode. We're going to be talking about finding your approach. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's discussion. Until next time. Sincerely, two imperfect therapists.